Chapter 44 of Romola. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Morant. Romola by George Eliot. Chapter 44 The Visible Madonna. The crowd had no sooner passed onward than Romola descended to the street and hastened to the steps of San Stefano. Cecco had been attracted with the rest towards the piazza, and she found Baldassare standing alone against the church door, with the horn cup in his hand, waiting for her. There was a striking change in him. The blank, dreamy glance of a half-returned consciousness had given place to a fierceness which, as she advanced and spoke to him, flashed upon her as if she had been its object. It was the glance of caged fury that sees its prey passing safe beyond the bars. Romola started as the glance was turned on her, but her immediate thought was that he had seen Tito, and as she felt the look of hatred grating on her, something like a hope arose that this man might be the criminal, and that her husband might not have been guilty towards him. If she could learn that now, by bringing Tito face to face with him, and have her mind set at rest. "'If you will come with me,' she said, I can give you shelter and food until you are quite rested and strong. Will you come? Yes, said Balthasari. I shall be glad to get my strength. I want to get my strength, he repeated, as if he were muttering to himself rather than speaking to her. Come, she said, inviting him to walk by her side, and taking the way by the Arno towards the Ponte Rubicante as the more private road. I think you are not a Florentine, she said, presently, as they turned on to the bridge. He looked round at her without speaking. His suspicious caution was more strongly upon him than usual, just now that the fog of confusion and oblivion was made denser by bodily feebleness. But she was looking at him, too, and there was something in her gentle eyes which at last compelled him to answer her. But he answered cautiously, No. I am no Florentine. I am a lonely man. She observed his reluctance to speak to her, and dared not question him further, lest he should desire to quit her. As she glanced at him from time to time, her mind was busy with thoughts which quenched the faint hope that there was nothing painful to be revealed about her husband. If this old man had been in the wrong, where was the cause for dread and secrecy? They walked on in silence till they reached the entrance into the Via de Bardi, and Romola noticed that he turned and looked at her with a sudden movement as if some shock had passed through him. A few moments after, she paused at the half-open door of the court and turned towards him. Ah, he said, not waiting for her to speak, you are his wife. Whose wife? said Romola. It would have been impossible for Baldassare to recall any name at that moment. The very force with which the image of Tito pressed upon him seemed to expel any verbal sign. He made no answer, but looked at her with strange fixedness. She opened the door wide and showed the court covered with straw, on which lay four or five sick people, while some little children crawled or sat on it at their ease. Tiny pale creatures, biting straws and gurgling. "'If you will come in,' said Romola tremulously, "'I will find you a comfortable place and bring you some more food.' "'No, 
I will not come in, said Baldassare. But he stood still, arrested by the burden of impressions under which his mind was too confused to choose a course. Can I do nothing for you, said Romola? Let me give you some money that you may buy food. It will be more plentiful soon. She had put her hand into her scarcella as she spoke, and held out her palm with several grossi in it. She purposely offered him more than she would have given to any other man in the same circumstances. He looked at the coins a little while, and then said, Yes, I will take them. She poured the coins into his palm, and he grasped them tightly. Tell me, said Romola, almost beseechingly, what shall you— But Baldassare had turned away from her, and was walking again towards the bridge. Passing from it, straight on up the Via del Fosso, he came upon the shop of Niccolo Capara, and turned towards it without a pause, as if it had been the very object of his search. Niccolo was at that moment in procession with the armorers of Florence, and there was only one apprentice in the shop. But there were all sorts of weapons in abundance hanging there, and Baldassare's eyes discerned what he was more hungry for than for bread. Niccolo himself would probably have refused to sell anything that might serve as a weapon to this man with signs of the prison on him, but the apprentice, less observant and scrupulous, took three grossi for a sharp hunting-knife without any hesitation. It was a conveniently small weapon, which Baldassare could easily thrust within the breast of his tunic, and he walked on, feeling stronger. That sharp edge might give deadliness to the thrust of an aged arm. At least it was a companion. It was a power in league with him, even if it failed. It would break against armor, but was the armor sure to be always there? In those long months while vengeance had lain in prison, baseness had perhaps become forgetful and secure. The knife had been bought with the trader's own money. That was just. Before he took the money, he had felt what he should do with it. Buy a weapon. Yes, and if possible, food too. Food to nourish the arm that would grasp the weapon. Food to nourish the body which was the temple of vengeance. When he had had enough bread, he should be able to think and act, to think first how he could hide himself, lest Tito should have him dragged away again. With that idea of hiding in his mind, Baldassare turned up the narrowest streets, bought himself some meat and bread, and sat down under the first logia to eat. The bells that swung out louder and louder peals of joy, laying hold of him and making him vibrate along with all the air, seemed to him simply part of that strong world which was against him. Romola had watched Baldassare until he had disappeared round the turning into the Piazza dei Mozzi, half feeling that his departure was a relief, half reproaching herself for not seeking with more decision to know the truth about him, for not assuring herself whether there were any guiltless misery in his lot which she was not helpless to relieve. Yet what could she have done if the truth had proved to be the burden of some painful secret about her husband, in addition to the anxieties that already weighed upon her? Surely a wife was permitted to desire ignorance of a husband's wrongdoing, since she alone must not protest and warn men against him. But that thought stirred too many intricate fibres of feeling to be pursued now in her weariness. It was a time to rejoice, since help had come to Florence, and she turned into the court, 
to tell the good news to her patients on their straw beds. She closed the door after her, lest the bells should drown her voice, and then, throwing the black drapery from her head, that the women might see her better, she stood in the midst and told them that corn was coming, and that the bells were ringing for gladness at the news. They all sat up to listen, while the children trotted or crawled towards her, and pulled her black skirts, as if they were impatient at being all that long way off her face. She yielded to them, weary as she was, and sat down on the straw, while the little pale things peeped into her basket and pulled her hair down, and the feeble voices around her said, The Holy Virgin be praised! It was the procession! The Mother of God has had pity on us! At last Romola rose from the heap of straw, too tired to try and smile any longer, saying as she turned up the stone steps, I will come by and by to bring you your dinner. Bless you, Madonna, bless you, said the faint chorus, in much the same tone as that in which they had a few minutes before praised and thanked the unseen Madonna. Romola cared a great deal for that music. She had no innate taste for tending the sick and clothing the ragged, like some women to whom the details of such work are welcome in themselves, simply as an occupation. Her early training had kept her aloof from such womanly labors, and if she had not brought to them the inspiration of her deepest feelings, they would have been irksome to her. But they had come to be the one unshaken resting place of her mind, the one narrow pathway on which the light fell clear. If the gulf between herself and Tito, which only gathered a more perceptible wideness from her attempts to bridge it by submission, brought a doubt whether, after all, the bond to which she had labored to be true might not itself be false, if she came away from her confessor, Fra Salvestro, or from some contact with the disciples of Savonarola, amongst whom she worshipped, with the sickening sense that these people were miserably narrow, and with an almost impetuous reaction towards her old contempt for their superstition, she found herself recovering a firm footing in her works of womanly sympathy. Whatever else made her doubt, the help she gave to her fellow-citizens made her sure that Fra Giolamo had been right to call her back. According to his unforgotten words, her place had not been empty. It had been filled with her love and her labor. Florence had had need of her, and the more her own sorrow pressed upon her, the more gladness she felt in the memories, stretching through the two long years of hours and moments in which she had lightened the burden of life to others. All that ardor of her nature which could no longer spend itself in the woman's tenderness for father and husband had transformed itself into an enthusiasm of sympathy with the general life. She had ceased to think that her own lot could be happy, had ceased to think of happiness at all, the one end of her life seemed to her to be the diminishing of sorrow. Her enthusiasm was continually stirred to fresh vigor by the influence of Savonarola. In spite of the wearisome visions and allegories from which she recoiled in disgust when they came as stale repetitions from other lips than his, her strong affinity for his passionate sympathy and the splendor of his aims had lost none of its power his burning indignation against the abuses and oppression that made the daily story of the church and of the states had kindled the ready fire in her too. His special care for liberty and purity of government in Florence, 
with his constant reference of this immediate object to the wider end of a universal regeneration, had created in her a new consciousness of the great drama of human existence in which her life was a part, and through her daily helpful contact with the less fortunate of her fellow citizens, this new consciousness became something stronger than a vague sentiment. It grew into a more and more def definite motive of self-denying practice. She thought little about dogmas, and shrank from reflecting closely on the frate's prophecies of the immediate scourge and closely following regeneration. She had submitted her mind to his, and had entered into communion with the church, because in this way she had found an immediate satisfaction for moral needs, which all the previous culture and experience of her life had left hungering. Fra Girolamo's voice had waked in her mind a reason for living, apart from personal enjoyment and personal affection, but it was a reason that seemed to need feeding with greater forces than she possessed within herself, and her submissive use of all offices of the church was simply a watching and waiting if by any means fresh strength might come. The pressing problem from Romola just then was not to settle questions of controversy, but to keep alive that flame of unselfish emotion by which a life of sadness might still be a life of active love. Her trust in Savonarola's nature as greater than her own made a large part of the strength she had found, and the trust was not to be lightly shaken. It is not force of intellect which causes ready repulsion from the aberration and eccentricities of greatness, any more than it is force of vision that causes the eye to explore the warts on a face bright with human expression. It is simply the negation of high sensibilities. Romola was so deeply moved by the grand energies of Savonarola's nature that she found herself listening patiently to all dogmas and prophecies when they came in the vehicle of his ardent faith and believing utterance. Note, he himself had had occasion enough to note the efficacy of that vehicle. If, he says, in the Compendium Revelationum, you speak of such as have not heard these things from me. I admit that they who disbelieve are more than they who believe, because it is one thing to hear him who inwardly feels these things, and another to hear him who feels them not. And, therefore, it is well said by St. Jerome, Habet nestio quid latentis energi vivae vosis actus et in oris discipuli de octoris ore transfusa fortis sonat. No soul is desolate as long as there is a human being for whom it can feel trust and reverence. Romola's trust in Savonarola was something like a rope suspended securely by her path, making her step elastic while she grasped it. If it were suddenly removed, no firmness of the ground she trod could save her from staggering, or perhaps from falling. End of chapter 44 of Romola Reading by Elizabeth Morant